sprint into the river and I'm like, Brian, reverse the car, reverse the car. And he reverses it and I'm trying to push the water. It's freezing cold because it's coming down from a glacier somewhere. And he starts trying to reverse and he can't get out. And the car is not budging and we are stuck in the middle of a river. Welcome to the Colin and Samir podcast. On this episode, we interview Alex Portera of the Nowhere Men. The Nowhere Men is a traveling group of filmmakers who have a really simple philosophy. They believe that everyone has a story to tell. They've traveled across 35 different countries over the past four years, mostly by car, and they've filmed all of it. They learned a lot about themselves, what it's like to live together in a car over months while driving. They learned about film and storytelling, but most importantly, they learned about the kindness of strangers. Today, four years after their first journey, they've taken to Facebook to produce videos about everyday people in New York City. This has to be one of our favorite conversations on the podcast so far. Alex shares some incredible stories from his travels. He talks about actually learning how to film and edit video and tells us about all the lessons he learned on the road. I think you guys will really enjoy this one. So here's our conversation with Alex Portera. All right, we are here in Los Angeles in our studio with Alex Portera from The Nowhere Man. What's up, Alex? Not much. It's great to be here. Awesome studio. How long have you been in Los Angeles? I got here two days ago for, uh, for VidCon. Amazing. So it is VidCon here in Southern California. Alex is in town. And I want to start this off with a story so you guys get an understanding of who Alex is and what his life has been like for the past four years. Tell us about the story from Bolivia. <laughs> um, okay, so <laughs> we were probably three quarters into a year-long drive from New York City to the end of South America, Ushuaia. Um, and we is the Nowhere Men, three guys, Brian, Eric, and myself. And we were driving through something called the Ruta de Lagunas in Bolivia, which is kind of like an off-road drive that most people do in a, in, in a tour bus or uh, like a tour Jeep, and we did it in our own car. And it's you pass through all these beautiful, beautiful lakes. There's like a pink one, there's a green one, there's a blue one, there's flamingos, and there's like snow-capped mountains all around you, and it looks like you're driving through Mars. It's incredible. Um, it had been raining that day, and it was, it was late at night, or it was, it was approaching nighttime, and we were driving through a patch, I was driving, that looked like dry land. There's not really roads, it's just kind of uh, mud. And what I didn't know is that this was like wet mud. And as we drove through it, suddenly the, the back wheel of the car just started sinking into the mud. And I kept driving, trying to get out, and the more I hit the gas, the deeper the car sunk into the mud. Uh, we didn't find out until like a week later that our four-wheel drive was broken, so I thought we had four-wheel drive, and we didn't. So uh, we, we like get out of the car, and we start trying to like dig out this, the wheel. And we keep digging, we keep digging, and suddenly it starts hailing on top of us. And it gets dark, like it's, it's hailing and it gets dark and we're like, we can't keep doing this. So we just get back in the car. We are literally covered in, like each of us had several pounds of like muddy clay on us because it just stuck to us. And we get in the car and we realize we have no water, we have two eggs, and there's no more cars passing us. They had all stopped passing like hours ago. And so we, we end up, in the, and the hail never stops, so we ended up taking out our little cooking stove and lighting the flame inside of our car and cooking those two eggs just in the inside of our car. And we, we ate those eggs, and 
slept in the car because there was nowhere to go. Uh, the weather was horrible. And then we wake up the next morning and the sun is out, but our car is, the, the, the whole back wheel is submerged to the point where the back bumper is actually touching the ground. And we, we start digging again and we're digging and we're digging and we're digging and we can't get out. And we just kind of gave up and we were like, we're stuck here and we're starving and there's no cars driving. Eventually, a, a car passes and we're like, we didn't have a tow rope. We're like, do you have a tow rope? They're like, no, and they keep driving. And then another car drives by and we're like, do you have a tow rope? And they're like, no, and they keep driving. And then another car stops and we're like, please stop and help us. And the driver was about to keep going, but there was a, like a young girl and her mother who were like, no, no, let's stop, let's help them. And they're like, do you have a tow rope? We said, no. And the guy was like, fine, if you want to get out, you have to cut out your seatbelts. So we cut out the front passenger seatbelt of our car and we tie it to the front of our car in the back of theirs. And the guy starts driving and it snaps. And we, we tie it, now it's a little shorter. He starts driving, we hit the gas and it snaps. And we try one more time. I was in the front seat of my car. The woman, the Chilean woman says, let me get in the front of your car, you push, we need your strength. And we push, we start pushing the car and she's revving the engine and it's pushing and the wheel spinning and the wheel spinning. And we lift up the back of the car and we're literally lifting it up and then it just jets forward and we made it out of the mud after 20 hours of being stuck in that mud. We were starving, like over this trip we had lost like 10 pounds in the previous week. I don't know why we didn't have any food with us. <laughs> um, and we made it out and we later met up with that Chilean family in Santiago and they grilled for us and we stayed at their house and it was a really beautiful experience, but a, a pretty terrifying one in the moment. <laughs> Unbelievable story. Unbelievable storytelling. That was the first time we've heard that story from Alex. I took some notes at the beginning, um, right before we started recording, of, of things to ask you. And I wanted to start this podcast throwing the audience into the middle <laughs> of your journey um, as a nowhere man uh, or nowhere man. So, uh, you know, today Alex is a part of a group called the Nowhere Men. Um, they currently have a Facebook watch show. It's got about 85,000 followers. They've made videos that have over 13 million views, which is unbelievable. And we're going to talk about how you got there, um, little stories, more stories like that, hopefully. Talk about online creation and um, all of this in the next hour before Alex gets on a bus to go down to VidCon. To start, let's talk about just the origin of the Nowhere Men, kind of where the name comes from, Lead us up to how you even get in a position to be in Bolivia and have that happen. Um, okay, so I used to be a management consultant. Uh, I was working at Deloitte with Brian. Uh, Brian and I were roommates in college. Eric was one of my best friends in college as well. And I was a management consultant for three and a half years, and I had lined up a job at a startup incubator. I was kind of done with consulting, and I decided I wanted to go traveling for a bit. So I signed up for this thing called the Mongol Rally, which happens every summer, where you drive from London to Mongolia in a laughably small car. We did it in something called a Nissan Micra. It was this bright purple car that's like a two-door, tiny, 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 like smaller than a Mini. And I was preparing for this trip, asked Brian about it. He, he joined up, and then Eric joined up as well. And so we planned to do this three-month trip. I would get back, and I would go work for a startup incubator. And as we were planning to do this trip, we got connected with a producer at the company that owns Lonely Planet. And he was making a show about people going on adventures. And he said, I heard about what you're doing. Do you guys want to take some cameras and film it for us? And we'll give you a little bit of money. And it was a tiny bit of money. Um, didn't cover the cost of the trip. And we said, yeah, sure. Like, we'll, we'll take it, because we were fundraising at that time. And we took off. 
in June of 2014 and spent three months. We drove through 19 countries, started in London, drove through Europe in about like six or seven days, um, and then spent like five weeks in Central Asia. So Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Mongolia. We were in Azerbaijan. We crossed the Caspian Sea in a in a like freight ship. Slept in like the basement of it. It was really really insane and and an incredible incredible journey. And I got back from that. And a few weeks later, we got an email from the producer saying this was really really great. You guys knocked it out of the park. Do you want to have your own show and drive to Patagonia? Uh, we didn't even propose it. And I was actually back at Deloitte at that time. I had somehow convinced them to let me take a leave of absence, which I'm forever grateful for. So I was at back with them. And uh, I remember I was in, you know, I was back in my button down. I had cut my hair. I had shaved my beard off. And Brian was in the office next door and he walked over and we just started freaking out like, <laughs> oh my God, we're doing this. And so a few weeks later, we quit our jobs. We bought a car in Jersey, and then we spent 13 months driving it down to the end of South America. So we went to 13 countries through Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Panama, into South America, and all the way down the Andes. So it sounds like no hesitation in that decision to continue this journey. Everyone was on board, but what was the response like from family and friends at that time? Was there any doubt? You know, I, th I think people saw how excited we were. And there, was, there wasn't too much, at least, that was exposed to us. I know my dad was like, this is dumb. Um, and my mom was terrified. She was just terrified for my life. And she hid that really well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I would get messages from, like, my aunt being like, call your mother right now. Like, <laughs> like you need to call her. You need to calm her down. Uh, but overall, people were supportive. And even people at my job were super supportive, I think, because they saw our first trip and they saw how crazy it was. And they knew that this was like an experience that for us was making us feel totally alive. And I was surprised at how supportive everyone was for that. And I, I think I keep finding that more and more is when like you are, when you are living something that makes you feel whole and that gets you excited. I think there's so much, there's, there's such a lack of that in the world mm -hmm. that other people feel inspired by that and generally will be supportive. So now you guys are going on your second trip. Are you known as the Nowhere Men? Are you putting out content? Are people able to follow along? Uh, we were called the Global Goulets, and we basically had an Instagram account where we'd post photos. We were called the Global Goulets because uh, Will Ferrell did this incredible sketch in yes, SNL where it. he was yeah. Robert Goulet. Yeah, and Robert Goulet was like a crooner from the 50s, and mm -hmm. Will Ferrell's sketch was hilarious, and it was just an, a joke that uh, my friends loved in college. And so we called ourselves the Global Goulets, and we would dress up like Will Ferrell in that sketch. We had these mustard-colored turtlenecks and these red aviators, and that was kind of our signature goofy look. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were called that for a while, and then uh, Lonely Planet told us to change it because, yeah. <laughs> because they were like, that's copyright infringement, and that, that could cause issues. So we changed our name to the Nowhere Men. It took us like three or four months to figure it out, but ultimately we're huge Beatles fans, and mm -hmm. we love the song Nowhere Man by the Beatles, and we thought that was a, a fitting name for us. So we've been the Nowhere Men ever since. And what was the goal or the mission statement of the journey, the second journey that you took and the content that you were creating? Like what stories were you trying to tell? It was always, so this was a, a totally unique way of filming a TV show because there was no camera crew. There was no one who was even experienced with cameras. So it was the three of us living in our car with limited money. I mean, our budget was tiny. We started off with a, with a budget that is like under 
you know, the poverty level for one person in the United States, and there was three of us for a year. And uh, the mission was really just, like, showing what life is like, not just for us on the road, but for the people that we meet along the way. And so, you know, the places that we went were absolutely beautiful and incredible. We hiked volcanoes. We were in the Amazon. We were on beautiful, pristine Caribbean beaches. But always, everywhere we went, it was these incredible people that we met that is what inspired us the most. And so meeting the different people and being able and having the privilege to share some of their stories through our show was always the highlight. And the people of this world are absolutely incredible. I mean, we were in Nicaragua and Leon and we didn't have enough money for a hostel. And so we were, there was like a truck selling pizza and we asked the guy selling pizza, hey, do you know where we can sleep tonight? Is there any parks that we could set up our tent in? Because we were camping the entire way. Mm-hmm. Over the 390 days that we were traveling, I think 190 or something, we were camping. We would pull over on the side of the road and set up a tent wherever we were, and I would sleep with uh, pepper spray just next to me, just in case, because <laughs> we had no idea okay. where we were most of the time, but uh, never had to use it. And the pizza guy said, yeah, you, can, you can't sleep anywhere like in the city publicly, but you could set up a tent in front of my house. And we were like, okay. So we drive into the middle of the city and he has, he has a, like a small house with just a dirt patch in front of it. And he's like, you can sleep here. And at the end of the dirt patch, his daughter was selling hot dogs until three in the morning out of a cart blasting reggaeton music. And we're like, okay, this is where we're sleeping tonight. And uh, across the street were a bunch of women in rocking chairs and they kind of beckoned us to come over. And we went over and we started chatting with them. And we had a really nice conversation. And then we went to bed and when we woke up, one of the women came over to our tent and was like, come over for breakfast. I'm like, okay. And so we went over to her house for breakfast and you know, she lives dirt floors. There was like a, a pig in the back and she makes us breakfast of just coffee, bread and butter. And as she's feeding us this meal, she's telling us how she doesn't have enough money to send her kids to school most days because she can't afford the bus fare. And you know, so they stay home and they work. And you know, we're eating the food that this woman gave us. Obviously we had no clue. And, you know, that was one of those moments where it's like, how, why are you doing this? You know, like, why are you feeding us? Why are you taking care of us? And it was just out of the goodness of her heart. She didn't expect anything in return. Fortunately, we had like a huge bag of beans in our car, like multiple pounds that we never had the time to cook. So like we gave that to her and I think a few other snacks that we had in the car. But, um, you know, it was those types of stories of like the goodness of the world that we, that we really decided to focus on. Sounds like it was a pretty unpredictable journey. There was a lot of instability. Is that something that over time wore on you guys? Or was that sort of what facilitated the stories and the journey? How, do you, how did you look at that? It did wear on us and like, if, like physically wore on us. Like I got sick a lot. I was in the hospital a few times uh, over the trip. Like I was in a hospital in Colombia. I was in a hospital in like a very rural town in Ecuador. Like it was very, so it physically wore on us. But I think that was always part of the adventure. You know, it was always like, we are going to be living, we're going to survive, we're going to figure out ways to make this, and we're going to meet people along the way. I think if, if it wasn't as like rough and rugged as it had been, we wouldn't have found ourselves in almost all the situations that we ended up finding ourselves in. You know, if we could afford a hotel every night, it would have been a radically different experience, and I don't think it would have been as valuable. And so by forcing ourselves to, either, to speak to people everywhere, saying, where can we sleep? Where is it safe? You know, where can we get some cheap food? What should we be eating? You know, we'd meet people who are the vendors of selling you know, 50 cent um, like tacos in Mexico. We'd meet those people. Those people would invite us into their homes, and that happened throughout the trip. So, What was it like having a camera with you for the whole trip? Like, How did, how did that change the dynamic 
as compared to someone who's just traveling the world, you know, maybe without a camera, but like you guys had, um, were on a little bit of a mission with like a camera to like tell stories and show to other people. So just talk about like you're thinking through how you would interact with the camera when you would pull it out or were there times where you didn't want to, you know, film, like how, how did the camera play into the trip? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because we had to be filming everything all the time. We were filming a show, but there was no structure to it. So our instructions were basically film everything always. And that's what we did. And by having that camera on us at all times, it basically forced us to constantly be looking for something interesting to film because there's only so many, you know, hostile parties and there's only so many beaches that are exciting. So we always had to go look for experiences. And the camera got us into a lot of places that we never otherwise would have been because either we were, we were pushing ourselves to find a place to go or people would see the, see the camera and say, oh, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing that? And we would tell them and they'd say, oh, that's so interesting. And then they would start sharing their stories. And, you know, we would basically, it's, it's an aggressive style, but we just had the camera rolling at all times. So we would show up somewhere and just have it going. And some people would come over and start talking to us. Some people would shy away. And we always respect it. You know, sometimes people would be like, hey, I don't want this filmed. And we'd just turn it off right away, always. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an interesting thing. You know, we had to constantly be narrating our experiences. We'd wake up every morning and someone would film the other guys waking up. And then we'd film taking the tent down. And we'd film cooking breakfast. And we'd film getting in the car. And then when we're driving throughout the wherever we were, someone would have to get out of the car and film the car driving by and then back. And so, you know, sometimes we'd meet people who would want to travel with us and we'd be like, it'll take us 10 times longer to get to where you're going um, than if you just like, you know, went with someone else because uh, a 50 mile drive could take us six hours because we're just, you know, always getting out of the car. And sometimes that was super dangerous. Uh, we were in Mexico one time in like uh, an area called Chiapas, which is famous for this group called the Zapatistas, which were uh, uh, a group that wants independence from Mexico. And we kind of knew that, but we were like, whatever, we just have to get these shots. We're in these beautiful mountain roads. And I jump out of the car, and we have walkie-talkies to communicate with each other. And I'm walking down the road so that I can get a shot of the car driving towards me. And I see a cop car drive by. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And then seconds later, I hear Brian and Eric saying, the cops are pulling us over. Like, they're talking to us. You got to get back here. And we get back. I get back to the car, and the cops were like, what are you doing? Who are you? First, they thought maybe we were, like, causing trouble. And then when they found out we were just filming this shot, they were like, you need to be careful. You need to, they, they were like, you need to watch, because up in the mountains, they're watching you. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that kind of thing happened occasionally. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, t- tell us a little bit about the gear. Like, was it a... What, what camera did you have on you and like how much gear did you guys carry uh, around? We had two Canon XF-105s, which oh, are yeah. just video cameras. We have one in the back. Yeah. That so was we, our first camera. Yeah. So that's what we filmed with. We had like three GoPros and, and our phones. We actually used our phones all the time. And then we had, and then we had uh, some Sennheiser boom mics and, and a few lav mics from Sennheiser as well. Very cool. So, you know, something that, a couple of things that, that we say that really stuck out to me from you know the last couple of things you said. Um, one, which is really interesting, it's a quote I heard in film school and it really stuck with me, is that the camera teaches you how to see the world without a camera. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing that when you when you put a camera in your hand, you're forced to observe the world, I think under like a, a microscope or through a lens, um, which I think allows you to see the world really in a, in a deeper perspective without it. Um, the second thing was, I think it's interesting. You said you had all that gear, but you used your phone a lot. 
Um, we like to say a lot that the best camera you have is, is the one in your pocket and just the one that you have on you. So why'd you guys use your phone so much when you, when you did have that gear? What was the value of using the phone? Uh, it came in handy all the time. I mean, sometimes it was just useful as a second camera. Sometimes it was useful when we didn't have the camera on us for whatever reason and we wanted to film something. And often it was useful as just a less conspicuous way of mm -hmm. filming. So, I mean, we were in some pretty shady places sometimes, uh, various markets where, you know, we were in a black market in Nicaragua, the biggest black market, I think, in the Western Hemisphere because our car broke down and we needed a new something. I don't even remember what it was. Um, so we would, like, walk through that and film with our, with our phone so that there wasn't any, uh, we weren't being like too obvious. Um, but you know, the quality is good. The quality is good enough. And so we're always looking for the story. That's always what's mattered. And I mean, when we started actually making our, our Facebook series, we filmed 75 videos on, on our iPhones and we've got I mean, videos, that video with 13 million views was filmed on an iPhone. Um, so we've always taken the approach that like the story and the experience is always what matters the most. And, and the, the gear is always secondary. Love that. We, we totally follow the same uh, philosophy. So tell me, did, did you guys, um, what, was your, what was your experience with film prior to the trip? Like, wh what did you do? I guess, did you guys go to film school or like, you know, what was your experience? Uh, no, I mean, I studied economics. Um, I had a camera when I was in middle school and I would film short videos with my friends all the time. And we had fun with it. But I mean, no professional experience whatsoever. Uh, Brian like got a film degree. He, I think his minor was film at WashU, but it was like, uh, it's one of those where you really just study film theory and you don't actually do any production. Mm -hmm. And so we had no experience whatsoever. And the guy who, who sent us on this trip had a philosophy that like, you don't need to have experience to be a great filmmaker. And in fact, he had a very like rigid style of how he wanted us to shoot. And so he was like, I'm going to teach you that. And it's good that you don't have experience because I don't want you to film in any other way. Um, but you know, I don't know the exact quote, but there's like Werner Herzog said something where it was like, if you want to be a great filmmaker, like put the camera down and walk across like Europe and just take notes about everything you see. You know, it's like, that's how you become kind of what you were just saying. That's how you become a great filmmaker is like by seeing the world in a new way and by be, being curious about everything around you. And so you can learn like the, the technical aspects of filmmaking. Uh, but if you don't have that eye and that curiosity and that wonder, it's a lot harder to make a great film. And, and what was some of your inspiration prior to the trip, like from filmmaking or shows that you watched or people that you looked at? I mean, Anthony Bourdain has always been, always been um, the hero and, and the icon of what we would like to be. Um, so it's, I've been thinking a lot about that in the recent weeks mm -hmm. since he passed. But um, I mean, he was really the guy that we wanted to, to emulate in our work. Amazing. Yeah, we, we talked about that in two, two episodes ago on this podcast, how much he inspired us and um, you know, what, what an amazing storyteller he was and how much, uh, empathy and, and curiosity he had, you know, in the world. Yeah. I think I, I, what has been amazing since his passing is just like, it's like, why does everyone care so much? And there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, like everyone kind of just wanted his job and his life. Mm -hmm. Um, but what did people respect about his storytelling is that he was so curious and he was also very respectful, but always honest. And that honesty is something that I think you don't always see in a way that you did see with his work. Especially on television, I think you see that more on YouTube where you feel like you know the person, you feel like you're connected to them. But with him, he gave so much of himself as he was traveling that you did feel like you knew him. Not only did you want his job, you wanted to be traveling with him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, that's, that's if when someone sees your, sees your videos and they're like, I want to be there with you and I want to have that experience with you, I mean, that's, that's amazing. What's better than that? Yeah, we said this on a past 
podcast too, but he really was such a populist in the way that, you know, he would meet with famous rock stars in an episode, but he would give more time to the person he met on the street, right? Every story was, was deemed equal in his mind, right? Every person, which was hugely influential to me. Yeah, us too. I mean, that's always been our, our philosophy. It's, you know, one night we were sleeping on the ground outside of this guy's house in Nicaragua. The next night we found ourselves in the mansion on the beaches of Nicaragua. And it was like, both of those stories are equally valid, but everyone's story deserves to be told. So getting back to the nowhere, men, this incredible journey comes to an end. What happens to the footage? What happens to you guys? You, you said you weren't making very much money off of this show. What's your first move when you get home? We got back and we were kind of like, okay, we filmed this TV show. It's amazing. We had these crazy experiences. We almost died in Bolivia. We got hit by a bus. We had all these crazy things. This is going to be a hit. And so we got back and we were just kind of like, okay, well, we'll just bide our time until this show sells and we're millionaires. (laughs) We were like, like, this is amazing. So it's going to do incredibly well. And I mean, months went by and nothing happened. And the progress was very slow. I mean, we we had some great editors on the team, but the progress was way, way slower than we expected. And we're like, this is going to take a long time. And so we figured, why don't we just start making some content online, build up our own audience. Maybe that'll help them sell the show. And so we thought about it for a while and we said, what do we love? What do we love about this experience? We love traveling to new places and we loved meeting new people. Like we live in New York city. There are people from all over the world right here. So why don't we treat this city as if why don't we live in the city as if we're tourists here, as if we're travelers, really? I wouldn't say tourists. Um, as if we're travelers and have that same curiosity we'd bring to a random town in Peru. Why don't we bring that here? And so we said, we asked ourselves, what are we curious about? And I think we did a test video where we went to the Thanksgiving Day Parade and just filmed that and kind of made a goofy video. But the first serious video we made, we were curious about, you know, New York City is, we say New York City is synonymous with street food. Who are these street food vendors that are selling food all around the city? And so we found someone and we made us, we did a day in the life video about this, about this person and what it's like. We went into this woman, Avelia, she's amazing. Um, and Anthony Bourdain actually had her on his show as well, randomly. Um, but, uh, we went to her house. We filmed with her as she was, you know, waking up at midnight to cook tamales. We filmed with her as she cooked them until 4am. We went out with her on the street at 4 a.m., sold them with her until noon and just showed that experience and talked to her and interviewed her and made a video. And at that time, we were under the guise that videos on Facebook needed to be like a, a minute or less, basically. So I think we made a 90-second 90 90 version of that. And we posted it with basically no audience, and it got 60,000 views. And we're like, huh, that's interesting. And uh, so we started making more and more of these videos. Ultimately, we posted the full version of that video, which was eight minutes long, like three or four months later, and that got a million views. And we're like, huh, okay, we know nothing about this platform. We're just gonna, we're gonna keep trying and keep learning. <laughs> Did you post it anywhere else? YouTube, no. Instagram, just Facebook? I mean, we literally posted it on Facebook and didn't do anything else. What made you pick <laughs> Facebook for that first video? Um, we, I think we just wanted to show our friends. We wanted to like, you know, it was just like, we're, we're on this platform. We didn't expect anything to come of it. We weren't really planning to go all in on this. And, and suddenly it did really well. So we posted it on YouTube as well, and it got like five views. Um, wow. <laughs> but so we we're like, okay, Facebook's working really well for us. And we actually saw a lot of success early on where we were posting on YouTube and Facebook. And just, you know, we, we had... One, like one of the, our fifth or sixth video or something got like 150,000 views. And then the video right after that got 300,000 views. 
on Facebook and they were getting 5, 10, 15 on YouTube. And we're like, okay, let's just keep going with Facebook since it's clearly working for us. So what did that experience feel like going from filming for months and capturing tons of footage, seeing the process be really slow and and not seeing, not getting that validation of, of watching the final product and putting it out there in the world to now doing your own projects, putting them out on the internet and seeing an instant response. I love that. It's amazing to have complete creative control to go out to shoot something, to edit it and put it out and just have it in the world and having people react to it. People's lives are changing from this content. Um, I mean, some of these people have seriously, like uh, a video we filmed, the guy, he won Animal Rescuer of the Year because of, of our video. And, um, and that has completely changed the, the direction of his life. And so having that just instant feedback loop makes not only makes us better filmmakers, it, I mean, it's inspiring. Sometimes it's tough if a video is not performing well and you feel you, and your validation is hinged upon the success of a video. Uh, so we try and avoid that as much as possible. But I mean, people ask all the time, are you trying to you know, create a new show? Do you want to create a new show? And I just love putting it up online. I love that. I love the connection that we have with our audience. Um, all of it feels, it feels more real to me. So how long ago was that, that you put your first video up on Facebook? That was like a year and a half ago. I think it was maybe December of 2016. And now you've built a community of what, 87,000 people who follow your page? Yeah, we have 87,000 followers, give or take. Yeah. So now what does the nowhere men look like? How do you operate? What are your goals? You know, what is nowhere men today? So when we started, we started posting those videos and when it was going well, we decided, okay, we're going to commit to posting at least one video every single week. We knew that consistency was key here. We knew that sometimes it would also mean that some of our videos wouldn't be as good as others. But I think that consistency, we committed to it and we haven't missed a week since. There's been times where we've been very, very close, but uh, we decided we're going to do this. And what we're going to do is we're going to tell stories about people. We didn't really define it more than that. If we are interested in someone, then we expect other people will be interested in them as well. And we're going to start telling those stories. And so we've had this weekly video series, Eric, Brian, and I. Um, recently, Eric left. We actually posted a video right before I got here. Um, Eric, see, he's going off to business school. So uh, that's, that's like a new direction. So it'll be Brian and I going forward. But we actually in the last year and a half, we posted 100 videos. So often it was actually two a week. Um, we just celebrated that. I think two weeks ago we posted 100 videos. So yeah, so it's the three of us. Now it's the two of us. And we're going to keep posting at least one video every week. Ideally, our, our goal is to just make this our full-time jobs. We've been freelancing. I'm a copywriter, so I've been doing that for the last year and a half as well. So you know, it was 40 to 60 hours a week probably uh, 40, 50 hours a week copywriting and then 20 to 40 hours a week doing Nowhere Men stuff whenever we could. And it's starting to shift where Nowhere Men is allowing us to, to pay our bills more and more. We're not fully there yet, but we're getting there. Amazing. So that, that, that's, a, uh, that's a really important thing, I think, to talk to the audience about. A lot of people who listen to our podcast are aspiring creators or you know want to bring an idea to life and understanding how much time it does take to, you know, bring an idea to life and make something like the Nowhere Men your your full-time gig. So, so tell me about, like, uh, you know, copywriting, um, I guess, and, and like, freelancing um, while continuing to do this. Was there ever a point where you were like, man, I, I don't think I can do the Nowhere Men anymore. I, I need to go off and, and, you know, do a job or, or anything like that? Or have you always been, like, fully passionate and never really hesitated? 
I think it's both. I think it's been fully passionate and I've never hesitated. And also all the time, I'm like, I can't keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of work. And I had never been a copywriter before. I just always liked to write and I learned that I could make money from it. So I was teaching myself how to be a copywriter and also how to be a freelancer and also how to make these videos online at the same time, which was an incredible, incredible struggle. I mean, I had no social life for a while. I've kind of got more of more control over it now, but I mean, all the time it's like, what am I doing? Why, where is this going? Is there any point to this? I mean, I, the other night I couldn't fall asleep for like five hours last week because I was thinking about this. I mean, when it was the day that we filmed the video about Eric leaving and I was just up for hours being like, should I be leaving? Should I be doing this? And then honestly, what got me to sleep was just thinking about the impact that some of our videos have had on people's lives and thinking about like how much people have loved them and, and some of our videos where people have, we tell stories that people don't see online you know we one of our one of the videos i'm most proud of is we filmed a video about like what it's like to be an african-american muslim during ramadan and you don't see stories about black muslims really ever and so so many people comment on those videos and say like thank you for telling a story like thank you thank you i mean the woman we filmed it with she actually reached out to us to film with her after we put out the video she was in a donut shop near where she starts her bus route and she heard her voice coming from a phone and she walked over to the person who was watching it and they were watching our video. And she said, hey, that's me. And this guy looks up at her, also a bus driver. Um, I presume also a Muslim, I'm not sure though. And started crying. And he was like, oh my God, you're a real person. This isn't like a fake story. You're actually a bus driver and you're just like me. And, he said, and she said he was just crying and just because she was so happy to see this. And so those are the types of things where I see how powerful this, these stories can be. That keeps me going. That's that's a really powerful story and and um, really awesome. I think for anyone who has a creative vision and a creative passion, who you know that that oftentimes comes with a lot of self doubt, uh, especially with how much time some of this stuff takes to to really bring it to life and, and become a reality. But um, I think that's a that's an amazing story about why you know you're you know remaining on this path and and continuing to tell these stories. Additionally, you have a Nowhere Men tattoo on you, so it would kind of be tough to, to leave, I think, at this point, right? Yeah, I'm kind, I'm kind of tied to this for life. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Eric also has one. We all have them. Amazing. <laughs> so yeah. Eric is leaving, but, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, we're, we're tied to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if it all, you know, on our first project, Colin and I, you know, there was, there was often times where we were like, is this, are we wasting time? Should we move on? Should we just go do something else? But, you know, we always talked about that if it ended any of those days, um, you know, that starting a business together and, and making videos together, that would stay with us for life. And it's still like, even if tomorrow all of this ends, this has been an unbelievable journey. And obviously for you, um, you know, no matter what. I've always known throughout it that there is nothing that I would regret from any of it, even if it were to end. It's just been such a wonderful experience. Learning what I've learned, creating content, putting it out there, having people connect with it. It's, I just wouldn't take it back for anything. It's just yeah, I totally, totally agree. I think I owe, I'm always trying to minimize regret. I don't know, Jeff Bezos said something like that about like the regret minimization framework. But I always think, you know, would I, will I regret this moving forward? And I know I won't ever regret any of this stuff. Um, and yeah, like I, yeah, I actually have a tattoo of like our logo on our body, but that's not what this is about. Like this was about this experience that we've had. And so even if I quit today, you know, I would still be proud to have it. Of course. <laughs> So you, you were talking about writing um, and being a copywriter and 
you know, you, you were not an editor, editor prior to becoming an editor for Nowhere Men, right? Um, like no. you didn't know film editing before that. Interesting thing about us is that I went to film school. I, I studied editing from high school to, to college. Um, but Colin, who's a Italian and history major from college. Economics. Well. Sorry, Italian and economics uh, major. He is our primary editor. Um, he is an awesome writer. And I think we were talking even last night after seeing a documentary that mm -hmm. so much of editing is actually writing. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that, you know, you're, you're moving in, in the writing direction. I think to be a good editor means that you are a good writer. Um, so yeah. we talked about how, if, if you were writing a paper, you don't want to be loose with your words, right? Every word needs to have a purpose. And the thought we had last night was it's the same way in video. Every second needs to be important, right? Towards telling. The totally. Story. Yeah. If there's any, if there's any second that can be cut, you have to cut it. And often that's super painful. But uh, yeah, I agree that we, I spend a lot of time, we, we spend a lot of time on our scripts and thinking about what are the words that we're putting into it. And a lot of the stuff might be, it'll come from an interview, so we can't script it and we're getting natural answers. But when, when we have those moments where we are narrating and pushing the story forward, yeah, you have to be super, super concise and thoughtful about how you're saying what you're saying. So about maybe five or, or 10 minutes ago, you brushed by saying um, getting hit by a bus in Turkey. And I'm assuming that there's people listening who are like, wait, what? And so <laughs> I have that as a note as well. And I'd love for you to tell another story from the road to our audience right now about getting hit by a bus in Turkey. Okay. So this was in our bright purple car, the Auto Goulet. And we were driving through Istanbul. And we had, so we had all this camera gear. But we were often camping, and so in order to keep all the camera gear charged, we had a converter in our car, inverter. We had an inverter in our car to charge all our camera equipment. This, the car didn't have AC, and it was probably 105, 110 degrees out when we were driving through the, the city, and we were leaving, and we hadn't charged our, our cameras that night. So we had a bunch of electronics plugged into our inverter, charging them for the weeks ahead where we had no idea when the next day we'd have an out, access to electricity would be. And as we're driving through the city, we were about to get onto the Bosphorus Bridge, which is the bridge that connects Europe and Asia. And suddenly there was a pop and there was smoke inside the car. And we're like, we had no idea what was happening. We're like, our car's on fire, our car's on fire. Get out, get out, get out. And Brian's driving and he pulls over onto the side of the road and we're on a turn, but we were all so freaked out that we weren't thinking about it. And Brian opens the door to the car. And as he opens the door, a bus comes around the bend, and slams into the door. Brian pulls his arm in before it gets taken off by the bus, and it kind of just like crumples our door. And we get out of the car, and I'm, I'm panicking now telling the story because it was so scary. <laughs> but, but we're suddenly, we were all okay physically. We realized it was like the inverter, something, and it popped. It wasn't on fire, but, you know, whatever happened, it was okay. It was destroyed for the rest of the trip. And, uh, and so we're like, what do we do now? And so we're driving around. We like tie up the door to the body of the car with a, I think it was a tow, a tow rope. And we're driving around the city, like trying to find a mechanic. And I think it was Sunday and for some reason we couldn't find one. And so we just pull over on the side of the road and we're just asking like a random guy to help us. We're like, please help us, please help us. He can't help us. And then this guy walks up to us and he doesn't speak any English but he kind of like motions that he can help us. And he, sh he points across the street and there was a bus and it was clear that he, it was his bus. And so he's like, he said, I'll help you. And so he's just drive your car around towards the bus. So we drive it around 
and this guy whose name was uh, Barack, Barack Kaplan, he's a hero, he pulls out a sledgehammer from his car, and he's like, and he basically motions that he wants to sledgehammer the door closed because it won't close on his own. And we were like, uh, okay, we, we bought the car for like $900. And we're like, sure, whatever you need to do. And so he just takes a sledgehammer and starts sledgehammering the car back into place. And it's and literally beating the crap out of our car. And it kind of closes, but it doesn't go all the way. So the, the door had been too crumpled. And so he wanted to actually stretch out the frame. So then what we did is he took a metal, a steel cable from his bus and we tied it around the door frame, and then we tied the other end to a tree, and then we just drove the car forward to stretch out the door frame. We get back, it's still not there, he sledgehammers it a little more, and then eventually we get it closed, and so we taped up the door, the window was shattered, we taped up the door, and it was a two-door car for three of us, and we never used that door again, and we would climb in and out of the window occasionally. Uh, it took us a while to get it fixed, but uh, that was, that was how we got hit by a bus in, in Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> that is an unbelievable story. Like, wow, what a crazy story from the road. So were you guys filming during this time? Like, does that, is that captured on camera? Is some of the aftermath captured? We have some of it captured. Like, right after we got hit by the bus, we have it on camera. We weren't filming that because we were worried about our lives. But right after we were filming, and then the whole experience of this guy sledgehammering our car and everything, we, uh, we have that on camera. And he's actually one of our biggest fans now. So he wow. follows us and he still follows us, you know, four years later. <laughs> I would love to know if you guys travel again now, is there anything you would do differently having known some of these experiences you've been through? I mean, I, w I just would buy a better car up front. <laughs> I mean, I've seen every mechanic in Latin America. When we were doing that trip, we bought the worst car you've ever seen in your life. And I think we would see five to six mechanics in every single country we went to, to the point where we got to Panama and we actually had to ditch the car because there was a hole in our gas tank that was too big for any mechanic to fix. Our car was literally fume. We would smell fumes of gasoline in our car. So the number one thing I would do is, is uh, get a good car that could handle the road. At the same time, you know, you always look back on it. And as a filmmaker, I'm like, those are the, those are the great stories we have from the road. So like, I kind of wouldn't change anything. There's something <laughs> about having no budget that makes everything possible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, tell us about, you know, filming that show where, where can we, these stories are so good. How, how can we watch some of these stories? Is that an opportunity or, you know, what happened with, with the footage after those trips? It's, it's still under construction. So it hasn't been aired yet. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Uh, it might just be put up onto Lonely Planet's website. Uh, you know, hopefully it gets on TV someday. I'm not totally sure, but uh, I will let everyone know the second it's out there. Cool. And, and everyone can follow you on Facebook right now, right? You guys are on Twitter. Is there any other place you guys are uploading videos or primarily Facebook? Uh, we're, it's primarily Facebook, but you know, we're trying to up our IG game. We put our stuff on YouTube. We tweet probably once a month. <laughs> <laughs> and and you guys have taken other trips as well like i know you know the way i was first introduced to you was one of my really close friends um from growing up evan lozato he actually drove with well he went to college with you guys but he drove from san francisco to new york with you guys were you filming during those times as well 
Yeah, uh, th I mean, that was right at the end of the Mongol rally, so we made it to Mongolia, and we figured we've basically driven across the, uh, all of Eurasia except for China, more or less, so why don't we finish driving basically the circumference of the world, in a way, by flying to San Francisco and then driving to New York, so we picked up Evan and filmed that experience of taking him on the road, and I think it was very weird for him because we had just spent three months living together in a car, like, not really talking to anyone else, and then suddenly everyone was thrust into this environment where we had all these weird inside jokes that that he had to adjust to going through a strenuous experience like that in a confined space like a car um you know obviously you guys are friends but there have to be some times where there was conflict or personality clashes um, how did you did that happen and, and if it did happen how did you guys resolve some of that stuff so on the, the trip from london to mongolia there was no conflict it was, everything was so quick. Every single day we were driving and it was so intense that like maybe there'd be little skirmishes, but nothing real. The trip from New York to Patagonia was a different challenge because it was much slower. It was a lot longer. And so there we started to clash a bit more. And fortunately, we're all super easygoing guys and we had known each other for a long time. So we, I wouldn't have been able to do this trip probably with anyone else. But there were times where we had some serious blow-ups and someone would say, I'm leaving, I need a few weeks on my own, I can't do this. But we were filming a show and we couldn't really split up and we always knew that as well. And so that happened a number of times. And you know, there was one night where I was just like really angry for no reason and I just slept in the car when everyone else was in the tent because I just needed some space. The way that we dealt with it, we realized that you know these, these explosions of just conflict would happen when someone was bottling something up for a while. And so we actually got really, really good at communicating to each other when something was bothering one another. So, you know, I would bring something up, whether it was tiny or whether it was something huge, we would, we would bring it up. And so like the tiniest thing was like one day, uh, like Eric made a comment about how much toothpaste I put on my toothbrush. And for some reason that just set me off. Like weird things set you off when you spend this, this much time with people. I can relate. Every yeah. time we go on a production trip, Samir never brings toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> and I always just buy one travel size. Wow, Samir, look at and your eyes right now. He's out here using a lot of Wait, toothpaste. Are we, are we doing this right now? We're getting into okay, it, Okay, do you want me to walk you through yeah. how to do this? Yeah, somebody <laughs> teach us how to communicate, because I don't know if <laughs> we're going on a trip in two weeks. We've talked about it. Yeah, I, we just haven't resolved Colin, it. Colin brings good toothpaste, so I lean on him to bring the toothpaste. I understand that, actually. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like you, Samir, in this situation. But it was unspoken that he just expected me to be the one that brings the toothpaste. And that must time. have really got really you. Irked really you. really irked done. you every time, yeah. and you would just let it sit there and fester. Yeah, hey, man, you have toothpaste? You know I have toothpaste. <laughs> this happens every time. And Samir's like, perfect, I was counting on it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> saying, what if one time I didn't bring the toothpaste? These are the things These that really, things. when, you know, you spend all your yeah. time together, so, so you know what I'm talking about. But we had to bring those things up and say, hey, I know this is ridiculous, but it was really bothering me. And the other guy would say, oh, like, I didn't even realize I said that. I'm sorry. Sometimes it would get a lot bigger where, you know, maybe we'd actually push each other's buttons or maybe there was, you know, bigger comments. Maybe it was on a shoot and someone said something that was like really upsetting and you just have to bring them up. And so uh, that's a big lesson like that we've learned uh, through now. And like, you know, now I recently started dating someone and I'm like using these skills again where I've really got to, you know, be communicative. And it felt... Yeah, it was tough. It was tough, and it felt like we were kind of not being masculine in that way, bringing up these little petty things that bothered us, but we wouldn't have made it to the end together without it. That's, uh, that's awesome, awesome advice. We did an entire episode. Our first episode of this podcast is about our creative partnership and lessons um, from just being in a creative partnership for the past six years. So, you know, we, we can totally relate to some of that stuff. 
I didn't know about the toothpaste thing, so we'll probably, oh, you know, off the air. We've talked about the toothpaste. Listen, <laughs> off the air, we will sort that out. But yeah, there, I mean, there's so much because not only are you traveling together, but you're also working on a creative project. There's ideas involved. There's execution that needs to happen. It's like, it's a lot of different emotions, um, you know, and I, can, I can't even imagine what it's like to travel on top of that. Um, well, so that's well, I, amazing. Yeah, let alone when it's unknown exactly what the future holds, how you're going to make money, how you're going to support yourself. That adds so much pressure and it, it, it weighs on each member of the group differently. Absolutely. And I mean, what's, what's crazy about it is that when we got back from traveling, we all lived at home for a few months and then we actually all moved in together and have lived together for the past like year and a half doing this Nowhere Men thing as well. So um, I think what, as opposed to driving us apart because we learned how to communicate effectively and how to deal with these issues and our bonds got so deep because of that, it actually like allowed us to get closer and work together even more effectively where it's like, you know, when people see us on a shoot, they're like, how is this happening? You know, we're not saying words to each other. It's just like things just, we just communicate because we know each other so well that we can do things without words now. Um, but yeah, that's one of the questions we got the most is how do you guys not kill each other? And that is the answer. It's just that we communicated and we had a lot of respect for each other as well. Right. Amazing. So, uh, we are getting close to the time where we should be taking you over, uh, to your bus to VidCon. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you two more questions. Um, one, just, just talk to us a little bit about lessons from putting content out on Facebook, you know, storytelling for Facebook versus YouTube. You know, obviously you guys have had a lot of success on Facebook. We're totally, you know, we, we haven't really uploaded videos to Facebook, but we've been considering it. Um, and I'm sure today in, in, with all these different distribution platforms that you could go to, you know, why, why would you tell someone to go to Facebook now instead of YouTube or, or anything like that? Just tell us a little bit about that. So I think the, the, when you create a video for Facebook, it's almost always, it has to be a story that other people care about naturally without having any idea who you are already. So I think a lot of stuff on like, on YouTube, a video will be standalone, but you get to know these personalities where I think often on Facebook, you don't have that luxury until you really, really grow an audience. And so every video we think about, you know, how does this work in a standalone way? Who is the audience for this video? You know, who's actually gonna care about it? And then basically creating the most like concise, compelling video possible. I mean, I think a lot of people think videos have to be short on Facebook, but our best videos are all eight to 10 minutes long, all of them. So I don't think that that's true. What people care about is a, is a compelling story that is shareable. So you need to think about why would someone share a video and which is a little different than I think how other platforms work. And so what we found is like, it all comes down to how people see themselves, what kind of identity they have and how they want to present themselves to the world. Cause Facebook is when you share something or you comment, your friends can see it. And so that is a different dynamic that you have to think about when you're creating a video on Facebook. So it's like, you know, is this video going to help people look more informed, more intelligent, funnier, more thoughtful? You know, is this going to help people express who they are? You know, when we made a video about um, you know, the Mexican immigrant experience, which we have to be super careful about because we are three, you know, two white guys telling these stories, um, which is scary on its own. But, you know, when people see that, a lot of people from Mexico, whether they were born there or born here, were like, this, you know, resembles my experience, whether, you know, they, they went to that place where this woman was selling carts or whether, you know, it was just an experience that they see in their lives. And so they were the biggest supporters of that video because it represented them in a, in a part of their identity. And so we always think about, you know, who is this, who is this going to excite and why would they share it? I think for us, we're definitely looking at Facebook and I think some of those 
uh, points that you just brought up, especially like the concept of a share button and how much that is integrated into the platform is, is uh, evident in your guys' content. I think, ch you know, check out Nowhere Men on Facebook if you're interested to see what, um, you know, I think good Facebook content looks like. I think you guys do a really good job with that. Another creator who I know you guys have met, um, Nas Daily. It's an amazing creator to check yeah, out. He makes, he's the goat. Yeah, he makes <laughs> daily videos. They're one minute long. They're hyper shareable. Really amazing topics. Um, so tell us, just leave us with some, some lessons from the road, from this journey. What are some of the biggest takeaways from, you know, being a creator, going on the road, things like that, um, that, that our audience can take away? Uh, everything that we do is to create more connection and empathy in the world. And that drives our curiosity about other people's lives is what drives everything. And so what we learned on the road, the number one lesson is that people are good everywhere. I mean, there are lots of bad people for sure, but people are really, really good and will give you, give, you know, everything to you out of the kindness of their hearts. And sometimes we get pretty jaded, especially in New York about that, but always give people the benefit of the doubt and allow them to shine and it will pay back tenfold. All of our stories are always about someone else. And what we try and do is just show the side of them that we see that inspires us. And a lot of people don't see that in themselves. So when they see how we put together a video, they're kind of shocked like, and they see themselves in a new way. And so I think that with your content, if you're always trying to, I mean, tell the truth like Anthony Bourdain, but for us, trust others, be curious about others and, and help them shine. It takes you pretty far. Awesome. So, uh, I want, our audience to know where to follow you guys, where to check out your videos. Just tell us about, you know, where, where they can check it out. Yeah. So I think the best place again is, is Facebook nowhere men with an E and we have a Facebook show. So if you just follow that, I think you should get notifications when we post a video, which is every Wednesday, uh, follow us on Instagram. Hopefully something cool will happen there soon, but we're super responsive. I mean, you can, you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, you can tweet at us. And, and we pretty much respond to everyone who messages us. And we love to get to know other creators, um, fans, whoever. Time for one more story? Time for one more story, yeah. Crossing a river. That's what I wrote down. I don't remember Crossing the context. Crossing a river. Yeah, I know. I know the context. Okay, final story. We were in Mongolia, which is a country where there just are, for a lot of the country, there are no roads. It's just these washboard, dirt, and rocks, and boulders, and... We had a map of, we, when we travel, by the way, we don't use GPS. We just use a map and a compass. Um, I don't think I mentioned that before. So yeah, so we had a map of Mongolia, which is the eighth largest country in the world. Which, so like, imagine just having a, one map of the United States and trying to get from you know, one small town to another. It's pretty much impossible. So you're driving through, we were driving through Mongolia and there was this day where you know, we're driving and then suddenly the road splits literally into eight different directions and there's no road signs. And we have no clue which one will take us. We knew we needed to go east, but nothing else. So we take one of the roads, and it was the wrong one. And suddenly we're driving on just boulders. There's no road. It's just huge boulders that we're driving over in our tiny you know, two-wheel drive car with tiny wheels. And we are driving, and we get a flat. We change it. Five minutes later, we drive over like a knife of a rock, get another flat, we were carrying a lot of spares and then we're driving, it's getting late and there's a river in the middle of the road. And this is actually pretty common 
pretty much everyone who's driving around the countryside of Mongolia has gigantic SUVs with snorkels that like, and their cars are suspended so that you can get over these rivers. No problem. We were not driving one of those cars. And so I can I get out of the car with Eric and we walk across the river to see how deep it is. And I don't know, it was like maybe a foot. And we said, okay, we can probably do this. So Eric and I are on the other side of the river and Brian just starts driving and he gets about halfway through and then we hear a, we hear a pss, and then the car just stops moving. And we got a flat in the river and the car just went like underneath the rocks. And the water is about, you know, it's, it's just above the bottom of the door. And, we're, and I, I rush to the river and I'm like, Brian, reverse the car, reverse the car. And he reverses it and I'm trying to push the water is freezing cold because it's coming down from a glacier somewhere. And he starts trying to reverse and he can't get out and the car is not budging and we are stuck in the middle of a river. And we're like, what do we do? And like two miles back, we had passed a yurt and we were like, maybe they have a car. So Brian stays in the car. He's just inside the car. And fortunately, there was no water coming in. So Eric and I just start like running down the road and we, we get to the yurt that we saw and we try and communicate what was happening and the guy got it we there was no you know no english he didn't speak any english and he was like sorry can't help you like go to the other yurt down the road so we like run another mile and meet a guy and we're kind of like trying to with hand motions and sounds explain what happened and he got it and he's like okay i'll take you and we get in this gigantic old like soviet pickup truck thing i mean it was like one you had to climb into the car the tires were probably i don't know three or four feet high and we get in, we drive down the road, and Brian is now out of the car because our car started taking on water. So there was like five, six inches of water inside of our car now, and we hook up the, the, the pickup truck to the back of the car, and he pulls us out, and we get out. The car still starts because no water got in the engine, and we, it was dark at this point, so we just pulled it over on the side of the road. Um, we had one more spare tire, and that night, I mean, we basically we, we set up our tent, we drank a bunch of vodka, and then the next morning we woke up and we were in that same field that had popped three of our tires that day, and we had to find our way out. By some miracle, we made it out after like seven hours of, of driving around aimlessly because we were just in this huge field with no roads and no signs. Uh, we made it out, and uh, the next time we were in, we got a whole new set of spare tires. And there it is. That's where we'll end the <laughs> podcast. Unbelievable stories. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming by the studio. Thank you, guys. Um, we'll definitely have to catch up when we're in New York next time. I mean, hear more of these stories. Just uh, unbelievable. So make sure to follow Alex and the rest of the Nowhere Men on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for coming by, man. Incredible <laughs> stories. That's it for this episode of the Colin and Samir podcast. Make sure to follow Alex and the Nowhere Men on Facebook. That's where they put out most of their videos. You can also follow them on YouTube and Instagram. And you're going to want to stay tuned to these guys. Alex told us some amazing stories on the podcast, and their Facebook page is just filled with incredible stories, not only from the road, but just about people in their everyday life. As always, we want this podcast to be conversational. So if you have feedback for us, or if you have guests that you want to hear on this podcast, you can tweet us those suggestions at Colin and Samir. If you have questions for us, you can rate and review our podcast and leave a question in the review. We check those on a very regular basis. 
Lastly, some really exciting news for the show. The podcast is now available on Spotify. So now you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, as well as iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it. We'll have a new episode for you next Monday. And in the meantime, you can check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, everything across the internet is Colin and Samir. <laughs>